0: Good morning to each one of you. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Thank you for that song, Joe. Uh, You know, we asked the Lord to teach us a lot of things just here in the last uh, minute. And we don't know how he's going to do that. But a lot of that, you know, could happen this this coming year, this in 2011. I've uh, entitled the message this morning, anticipating the faithfulness of God in uh, 2011. I don't know where your mind goes when you you wonder about 2011. What what might the year hold for us? What might God be planning for you and I in, in 2011? What might the best and the worst of 2011 look like in my life? You know, as we Uh, reflect back on on the past year you know there's uh there's times we we might think of uh you know all the things that we thought might happen and and you know they they didn't have have we stopped to thank god that all those things we were afraid could happen and and you know we we worried in vain i think it's it's good to reflect back and thank god that that uh, those things didn't happen and, and maybe repent that we worried about them. Then there are the things that did happen. You know, uh, it's been a difficult year for some. Some of our, uh, us right here, you know, there was some death in, in some families. You know, maybe a new low, uh, a new worst experience that we've ever faced in, in life a new disappointment, a new failure. You know, we we can be pretty hard on ourselves sometimes when we, you know, stumble and fall repeatedly on on the same things. But God was faithful. You know, we survived. We're we're here and we we started a new year. Some have experienced maybe a new high, uh, a new best. Uh, some, uh, a new little baby, healthy little baby born into your home. That's, that's something to really be thankful for. That's uh, an exciting time. I don't know if there's any here that are found a new wife or a new husband in this past year, uh, in the last couple of years. New challenges, new victories. Uh, A new sense of security in the faithfulness of God. Isn't that a blessing? Hopefully, as we reflect back on this past year, that's something that that all of us had got a little better grasp on. Uh, You know, bad economical times. It can be a good thing. It can help us to understand a little better where... All the good and perfect gifts come from, and what really matters in life. You know, a thousand years from now, what does it matter what I made or didn't make in 2010 or what difficulties came my way? Maybe we found a new piece of what it means to be surrendered to God and allow God to to have full control and let his will be be made manifest in in your life and mine. You know, one thing we can be sure of, whether 2011 is worse, maybe much worse than 2010, or if it's better, much better, one thing we can be sure of that God will be faithful just exactly like he was in 2010. It'll be identical. God will be faithful. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, I want to use as a text verse this morning, as we anticipate the faithfulness of God in 2011. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, I, I'm sure I read this verse many times in the past, but there's, there's something caught my eye as I, I read this verse this time, and, and it was that phrase, a thousand generations. And my mind started rolling a bit, you know, well, what's he saying there? Uh, where, where does this thousand generations start? And well, the most the most conservative thing could be from Adam and Eve. So well, let's start there. And I, I did a little math, and you know, if if we figure from Adam and Eve, you know, you can go back to to Luke, and you can start counting the generations. They're all named there. And then if you go from Christ, and you know, figure twenty five years or so to generation, you know, we, we've just begun on a thousand generations. It's just, we haven't hardly started yet. Uh, we have some 845 generations to go before we use up these thousand generations that God has, has promised us. You know, that's our God that can promise that kind of uh, blessing a thousand generations, and if it starts from, you know, Moses, uh, where this was given, you know, it'd be much more. If it starts with you and I, that He's promising a thousand generations from us, it's way more yet. But regardless, uh, we've, we've only used a little bit of that that thousand generations up. That's the God we love. That's the God that loves us. We want our children to love him. We want our grandchildren to love him. Generation after generation. So, you know, young fellows, uh, it's okay to find a wife, to to get married, to have children, because God has promised he will be faithful to a thousand generations. Don't fear to bring children into this world. God will be faithful. In 2011, ladies, you can say, okay, let's get married. Let's have a family. God will be faithful. Anticipating the faithfulness of God in 2011. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I believe in Christ just like I believe in the Son. Not just because I see it but because by it I see everything else. He doesn't believe in the sun just because he can look up in the sky and see the sun, but the sun shines light on everything that he can see. So I think in in light of that, the the better we understand the faithfulness of God to to us here today, the more likely we will be faithful to him. You know, I think, it's it's good to, to reflect back, those of us that have a, a few years behind us, to reflect back and and future gener or, or past generations reflect on the faithfulness of God. And that builds in us the ability to trust Him and anticipate His faithfulness in the future. This morning we want to look at His purposes, His promises, and His plans that that he has for us that we see in in his word. God will be faithful in his purposes. Let's go to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. God's purposes are eternal. God's purposes are eternal. Ephesians chapter three. Verse 11, here Paul says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has an eternal purpose. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says it this way, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Paul's telling Timothy there that God has an eternal purpose. This was purposed by God before the world began. What would happen in your life and in my life? That's that's hard to get your get your arms around isn't it that god had a purpose for you and for me before the world began it's an eternal purpose and we can when when god purposes something that that's altogether different than when you and i purpose to do something we you know we kind of call it good intentions a lot of times. And we have these noble purposes we set out to accomplish, but so often and so many times fall short. And we tend to give ourselves a little uh, room, but but our fellow men, you know, we kind of get frustrated when they don't, you know, follow through. But God, God does. Secondly, let's look at God's purposes. They cannot be stopped. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14. Let's begin reading at verse 24, Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. For this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? That's, that's our God. Isaiah is saying here that, that the Lord of hosts has a purpose. He's, he's reaching out his hand and, and he's planning to accomplish something. And he raises a question, who's going to stop him? The answer is no one, no one's going to stop God's purposes. It's futile to, to try. I remember uh, some years ago, uh, Mel Good's brother Harold was was preaching over at the chapel, and he was talking about how uh, when Jesus was crucified and they went and they they put him in the tomb, and and uh, Pilate said, "Make the the entrance as sure as you can, you know, seal it." And and the soldiers there and and uh, Harold made the comment that. You know, everything they could possibly do was just as good as if they'd done nothing. There's nothing. Nothing human men can do to stop the purposes of God. Jesus was going to be raised again. It didn't matter what those soldiers done, how big the rock was, how well they sealed it. It was going to happen because it was the purpose of God. God has a purpose for you and I. Let's go to Acts chapter 26. This is uh one of the favorite scriptures that I I just find uh just amazing how God reached down to a man called Saul and and gave him a life work. And I think uh God does the same for you and I. I think he, this, this same calling is very much what God is, is calling you and I to do. This is uh, Paul later in life before King Agrippa reflecting back on his conversion experience. Verse, uh, Let's start it at verse 16. Acts 26, verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of the things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I shall appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they, may be, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Here, God is laying out clearly before Paul what his purpose is for him in life. And it, it is going to happen. You know, why did Jesus appear to you and I? Why did he bring about the situations in our life that we came to know him and commit our lives to him? Why did he do that? What is the purpose he has for you, for me? Now, Paul didn't know what all he was going to have to suffer. Remember, God told Ananias that there's going to be a lot of suffering ahead for Paul. God doesn't say much about that here. He's giving him a purpose. And we want to talk about that later. There was a plan. God had a plan for Paul. And there was was a lot of suffering ahead for Paul. But, But here's a clear purpose. I want you to go to open eyes, to turn people from darkness to light. Isn't that what you and I are here for? Isn't that why... Why God reached down and touched our lives so that we came to know peace and joy in serving Him so that we could turn others from darkness to light, to open their eyes so that they too could experience forgiveness and know what it's like to have all those ugly sins of the past forgiven. And as we fail again, that we can turn time and time again. We want to talk about that a little later. Romans 8, 28. Here again, this is Paul. This is Paul talking. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. We often, you know, kind of grab onto that phrase in there that work together for good and forget the last part called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. A purpose. He's reaching out with his hand and nothing is going to stop God's purpose. Are we anticipating the faithfulness of God in 2011? We can be sure that he will be faithful in his purpose. God will be faithful with his promises. Spurgeon once said, faith without promise is like a foot without ground to stand on (laughs) think about that having feet but nothing to put them on (laughs) that's what faith is without a promise and god certainly hasn't left us without promises hebrews 10 verse 23 says let us hold fast the profession of faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised we can be sure if we read a promise of god in god's word he will be faithful we all know what it's like to be disappointed by someone making a promise to us and and then just that promise being broken and how how just disappointing that is you know it was clearly stated we there was a mutual agreement but the other individual didn't keep, didn't keep their promise. And we, we haven't always kept our promises. And that's, you know, we are, we're very disappointed in ourselves when we are not able, for whatever reason, are not willing to keep a promise that we've made to someone. But that's not our God. He is always faithful. He always keeps his promise. D.L. Moody said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. We often, you know, read things or hear things and, well, that, that's too good to be true. That's not God. Even if even if it involves the impossible, the impossible is possible with our God. We found that out time and time again. Mary found that out when the angel came and said, you're going to have a child. She said, it's not possible. I don't have a husband. And I can almost imagine the angel grinning a little and says, oh, yeah. It's possible for God. And she found out it was. Hebrews eleven eleven. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who promised. I don't know what your impression is of, of Abraham's wife Sarah. We we see Abraham as this this giant of faith, you know, he wavered a few times here and there. But for the most part, he trusted God, you know, there on Mount Moriah and willing to kill his son, that promised son. I can't imagine that laying my son down and raising a knife to, you know, but but Abraham, he was a man of faith. We kind of think of Sarah as uh, uh, nowhere as near. Abraham's stature of faith. But here in Hebrews, it says she judged him faithful, that promised. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? That we've judged God faithful when he makes a promise. We judged him faithful that he will keep that promise. Let's look at a few promises that God has made to you and I. Hebrews chapter 13. We're thinking about the faithfulness of God in, in 2011. Here's one that, that can comfort us as we look into the future. Sometimes the future can be a little scary because it's, it's unknown, and the unknown is, is scary at times. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, let's begin reading at verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy for me to start fearing other human beings. I don't like to be around angry people or people that are just uh, very pessimistic and, you know, everything's bad and everyone else is bad. And, you know, we, we don't like being around people like that. But here we're promised that God will never leave us or forsake us. And therefore, we can boldly say the Lord is our helper and will not fear what man can do unto us. That's a promise. That's a promise that God intends to keep in your life and mine. Promise to forgive. A familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What would 2011 look like without that promise? What hope would there be for you, or for me, if we didn't have that promise that every time we fail in 2011, we can kneel before our Maker, confess that sin, and He's promised He will forgive? That, that's, a, that's a great promise. Hebrews 2. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, the high priest, pleading our case before the Father. That's a beautiful picture standing at the right hand of the father and saying, you know, there's Delvin. And, you know, he's he's pleading for forgiveness. And, you know, Jesus is there pleading Delvin's case or Rich's case or Norman's case. What a beautiful picture that is. The heart of God is is with his people. And the heart of his people is with their God. Is that is that our testimony here this morning? We have hope. We have hope for 2011 because we have a faithful God that that keeps his promises. Let's look at another promise yet in first Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, we just looked at, at the promise that God will faithfully forgive time and time again, cleanse us from sin. Here's another one. First Corinthians 10, verse 13. We are promised possible victory every time temptation comes. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That's a promise from a faithful God that every time we are tempted to sin, there is a way of escape. There's a way to have victory. We don't have to fail. Time and time and time again. If we do, yes, forgiveness is promised, but we don't have to. We don't have to fail. There is the ability to experience victory in our Christian walk. What a promise that is. Spurgeon said, many many a believer lives in a cottage of doubt when he might live in a mansion of faith. So often we're content with so much less than what God really wants for us. He wants us to live in victory. This cottage that Spurgeon's talking about is not a cozy little cottage by the lake. This is a shack that's just about to collapse on this doubting believer. So let's not doubt. Let's not doubt the promises of God but let's anticipate the faithfulness of God to his promises in 2011. God will be faithful with his plans. This is a verse that has uh, been really special to me the last while. Uh, some of you were aware that I had had weekend meetings up at Mount Hermon uh, back in October, and, and it's, for some reason that really frightened me. Uh, well, just anything up in Harrisonburg's frightening. <laughs> and I had pictured these big churches and, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, Mount Hermon wasn't that. It was a nice little country church, very nice, friendly people. And, but it, when I was studying, preparing for those meetings, I came across this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. And I'll, I'll give it uh, from the New International Version. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What a what a blessing that almighty God is looking down and and he has put some thought into Rich Bowman's life and and he he has it planned out, you know, and, and it's. It's going to be good. There's going to be uh, prosper. There's going to be hope. There's going to be future. That's a good verse. As we think of 2011, God has plans for us. And it's not to harm us, but there's going to be a future. There's going to be hope. You know, many times when we think of the faithfulness of God, we think of blessing. We think of him meeting our needs. We think of him leading and guiding in our lives. But I'd like us to think a little bit this morning about the the faithfulness of God. God's faithful in every area of life. You know, sometimes we need conviction. Sometimes guilt is a blessing from God. We were, we were singing here a little while ago about, Lord, teach me this, teach me that. You know, God uses difficult times, oftentimes, to teach us. The, a lot of the hymns we sing, whoever wrote those hymns came through a very difficult time, and that's what inspired that hymn. Uh, a lot of the books that, that we read, were come out of a, a difficult experience that someone went through and then they 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 write a book about it and it and it challenges us to the faithfulness of God. As we anticipate the faithfulness of God in 2011, we can expect suffering. I think that that is uh, clearly stated in Scripture that we will expect suffering. First Peter four nineteen. Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. A faithful creator sending suffering to you and I. That's part of what it means for God to be faithful. He sees a need to bring suffering into into our lives. Just back a few verses, verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. It's saying there that God brings suffering into our lives in order to get glory for himself. That brings a different picture into suffering. It's to bring glory to God. Acts 9:16. this is back to, we were referring earlier to Paul and his conversion experience. This is God talking to Ananias and trying to convince Ananias, you know, you go over there and, and you pray for this man. Uh, and Ananias said, no, he, he persecutes Christians. He locks them up. And God says, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffering was a big part of Paul's life. Yeah, he caused other Christians to suffer before his conversion. But after his conversion, he experienced a lot of the same thing that he had, he had done to, to Christians before his conversion. But he did it gladly. He, he plotted on faithfully for God in spite of, of all that suffering that, that he had to go through. Maybe God has some suffering plan for you or for me this year. But we can, we can anticipate the faithfulness of God through suffering when we, when we see it as God getting glory to himself. Chastening. What, what is chastening? That's, this was a, a very interesting thing I stumbled on here, this whole thing of chastening. You know we have uh, a lot of scriptures that that speak of chastening. Uh, Psalm Psalm ninety four verse twelve says, "Blessed is the man whom Thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of Thy law." There's there's blessing in being chastened. In uh, Hebrews Hebrews twelve. Verse 6. We again read of, of uh, God reaching down and, and chastening us. What what does that mean to be chastened of God? Here it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It's It's one way we know that we're one of the children of God when we receive chastening. I... I stumbled on, i occasionally do a little words, uh, word studies. I had taken a Greek class at SMBI, almost failed it, <laughs> don't do well in language studies. Uh, but it, it's interesting with, with computers anymore, you can, you can do word studies very easily. You don't have to know much. And uh, what I like to do sometimes is, is take a, a, a word, that looks kind of interesting out of a verse, and then do a search and see where else it is used. That can, that can really really open our eyes sometimes, how that same Greek word is, is interpreted into the English language in, in different ways. This was an eye-opener to me. Turn in your Bibles to, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter six verse four. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That word uh, nurture, the word nurture, is the same Greek word as chastening in in Hebrews where it says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth." You know, when I think of that, I, you know, my mind kind of starts going to, you know, a little boy in the woodshed, you know, he's getting chastened. And sometimes God needs to do that to me. But when I read nurturing my children, I think more of, you know, encouraging them to, to do right, helping them to, to, you know, choose right from wrong and and it's kind of a a building up rather than a than a punishing. Maybe I have a bad interpretation for nurture, but I don't I don't think of nurture and chastening as the same thing. Same Greek word. Exact same Greek word. Second Timothy three we have a another place where this this same word is used that that gives new meaning to to the word chastening Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 a familiar verse all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness which one of those words do you think is the same greek word as chastening Somebody respond. We have reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness. Which is, which is chastening? Somebody want to venture a guess? No. Instruction. Yeah. Instruction is the exact same Greek word as chastening. Isn't that interesting? So when the Lord chastens you in 2011, think of not only maybe correction, but it's it's nurture, it's instruction. It's for our good when God brings chastening into our life. It's because of his faithfulness that he brings this into into our lives. This past year has been difficult for, for some of you, for some of us. It has been very difficult for some others, some very difficult things to, to go through this past year here in, in our community. And I'm sure many of us had a really good year of uh, this past year, but whatever describes your past year, we can all testify that God was faithful one hundred percent of the time, regardless what we went through, regardless of the uncertainties, the, the disappointments, the, the struggles, God was faithful one hundred percent of the time. Looking back, we could all conclude that life went best when we trusted him, when we were faithful to him. He was always faithful to us. We weren't always faithful to him. But when we were, that's when when life went best. As we look forward to to 2011 with anticipation. Let's faithfully serve our God. You know, he he has purposes that that will not fail. Remember, we read in in Isaiah that no one, no one is going to stop the outstretched hand of God. His promises are sure and his plans give us hope and and a future. So let's, let's anticipate the faithfulness of God together because he has good in store for us. That good might not always look like what we would like it to look like, but it's coming from a faithful heavenly father. Let's have a song.